As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right, all right. How's everybody this morning? Good, for the most part. Um, Did you watch football yesterday? Or play football yesterday? Uh, Watch the Panthers nearly beat the Cyclones. Like, ah, this much. I was at my parents' house uh, up in Clear Lake, and I was um, distraught is maybe a good word. Distraught. Uh, college football is back, which means my Saturdays are full. I'm going to take my keys out of my pocket, which means my Saturdays are full now of both preparing for Sunday and trying to figure out how to watch football without getting too anxious and thus making my preparation for Sunday difficult, uh, which basically means that if my team won, everything's great on Sunday morning, and if my team lost, then everything's harder for me on Sunday morning. Uh, And luckily, my team won last night. Uh, Go Hawks. I'm wearing the shoes. Uh, and so we're, so we're set up for a good day, right? We're set up for a good day today. If you're not a sports person, don't worry about it. Uh, it's only a couple months, right? It's only a couple months that we talk about football from the pulpit. All right. Uh, but this morning uh, is also a good day because we're going to hop into a passage of Scripture that I think is really, really interesting, actually. As I was studying this week, I, I, I stumbled upon some ideas that I thought were fascinating and that I really want to dive into this morning. So this morning, what we're going to do is jump right into the Scripture. So if you have your Bible, yeah, you can open that up to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, we are in the second week of a series we're calling A Whole New Way, uh, which, uh, first of all, I love that sermon graphic. Uh, Ashley uh, did that for us. It's beautiful, and I like it. Um, but uh, in this sermon series, we're looking, about, looking at the new way that Jesus invites us into, this new way of life that Jesus introduces his followers to. You know, sometimes when we think about Jesus, we think about and put the emphasis on what we believe about him, and that is without a doubt important. What we believe about Jesus is fundamental. It's important. Because before we can follow Jesus, we must believe that Jesus is Lord and then submit our lives to him, what we sang about this morning a little bit. But we can also sometimes lose sight of the fact that Jesus teaches us a revolutionary way to live. He is God. He did come to bring us life. But he also teaches us a way to life that is revolutionary, that is different than the way that most of us live our lives and the way that most human beings have lived their lives for the majority of human history. And his way of life, Jesus's way of life, is challenging and it's often provocative, but he promises his disciples that as we follow him, following in this way of life, adopting his pattern of being in the world leads to a kind of unspeakable joy and abundance. And as followers of Jesus, I, for one, want to learn how to live that joy, how to live that abundance. And I hope you do too, right? 
sounds pretty good, doesn't it, at least? And in today's teaching text, Jesus teaches us a new way of understanding what holiness looks like. This is what Jesus is teaching in our text for today. He's teaching about what holiness actually looks like in the kingdom of God. Now, this is interesting because often when we think about Jesus' teachings and we think about the way he's teaching us to live, we think about him teaching us about our kind of what I'll call worldly impulses. You know, these are the vices that we traditionally talk about in church all the time. Greed, gluttony, pride, sexual sin, those types of things. The way of Jesus invites us to challenge those things, what the Bible often calls sins of the flesh. The way of Jesus most certainly invites us to challenge those kind of cultural presuppositions about those things. But very often in the Gospels, Jesus also confronts our human impulse towards religiosity. Have you noticed this? He does this by uh, oftentimes coming into conflict with and, and leveling very stern critiques against the religious elite of his day, people like the Pharisees and the scribes. And that is what he's doing in today's story, actually, by challenging some of the assumptions that the religious leaders of his day had about what it meant to be holy or pure in the eyes of God. Because most certainly the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the teachers of the law, the religious authority of his day had a conception. They had an idea of what holiness was and what it meant. And Jesus in today's text challenges their presupposition. And so the question we could be answering today, if there was one question that we were answering today, it would be this. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Which I don't know if you've ever given any thought to. I have a little bit, but today's message, today's passage was actually startling to me as I looked at it. And you will see in this passage that the religious leaders have one opinion about what holiness looks like. They think they got it dead to rights, but Jesus has quite another opinion. And so, if you're with me, you can pick up in verse 9, uh, the story that begins as Jesus goes to recruit one of his primary disciples, a guy that in the, in the text is called Levi, but we learn is his, his name is later changed to Matthew. He becomes one of Jesus's primary 12 disciples. This is an important character. Jesus is on, at the beginning of this story, an important recruiting mission. And you think that Jesus on an re- important recruiting mission to uh, to call one of his primary disciples, one of, one of the men who will carry his message throughout the known world after his death and resurrection, you would think that Jesus would go to like one of the most important places in the world, the places where all the smart people go. He would go to like the Harvard of his day to try to recruit uh, top quality candidates, right, for being disciples. But this is not what Jesus does with Matthew. This is not what Jesus does with Levi. Because when Jesus finds him, the passage tells us that he is sitting in a tax collector's booth along a road. Now, the Roman system of government, like our system of government, ran on taxes. This is tax money is the engine of government. We know this, right? This is how they funded their military and constructed roads, just like it's how we fund our military and construct roads. But the way that the Romans collected their taxes was a little bit different than the way our government collects our taxes. We just like have to kind of like put our hand in a Bible and say, I solemnly swear that I'm giving you the amount of money that I'm supposed to give you. And we send them the money, right? And we hope and pray we don't get audited. Their system was a little different. Their system was a little different. 
the Roman system uh, of taxation, uh, in the Roman system, taxation or the collecting of taxes was farmed out to what we would call the private sector. It was a little bit the way that we do ta trash removal in Cedar Falls, right? Or I don't know if we do the trash removal that way in Cedar Falls, but the way most cities do trash removal. Uh, so that what happened was the Romans said to this individual who was the tax collector, here's your region. Here's the area over which you are going to um, collect taxes. And we estimate, because we have a really accurate mechanism called the census, that this is how many people live in your area. And based on the size of the area and the number of people in the area, the Roman government gave these tax collectors a quota. They gave them a quota. They gave them the, an amount of money that they were supposed to, uh, supposed to gather, collect, every so often. I don't know, I don't know what the time frame was, monthly, yearly, bi-yearly, I'm not sure. But they basically said, you have the authority of Rome behind you to collect taxes, and as long as you give us our cut, as long as you fulfill the quota, anything extra that you collect, you get to keep. You get to keep. Which is part of the problem with the whole private sector thing, right, at times? And so tax collectors become very wealthy by levying heavy taxes on people, right? This is what inevitably happens. They levied as heavy a taxes as they could possibly weigh on the people so that they could keep as much money as they could figure out how to keep. And so in Israel, tax collectors were considered some of the vilest and the most sinful people around because not only were they working for Rome, which was this large foreign occupying force in Israel, but they were also abusing and oppressing their own people financially. This would be like um, your mom or your brother or your cousin coming to you and saying, I need half of your money and taking it from you, right? It wouldn't make you very happy. And uh, this is something, and specifically for the, for the people of Israel, this is something that was, uh, that was particularly uh, troubling because in the Hebrew scriptures, we hear the prophets speaking about the type of judgment that God is going to bring upon Israel because of the ways that people in Israel are, are mistreating each other financially. And so tax collectors were not allowed to worship God in the temple and tax collectors were barred from fellowship in the synagogue, which is interesting. When the Hebrews referred to tax collectors, they called them either licensed robbers, or I found this week uh, a reference to somebody referring to a tax collector as a beast in human shape. <laughs> the next time the IRS comes, right? <laughs> tax collectors were lumped in with the worst sinners, right? with prostitutes and thieves. This is who they were lumped in with. And in our teaching text for today, you can hear the way that the religious leaders almost snarl when they accuse Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? And yet, Rabbi Jesus walks up to Levi and invites him to be one of his disciples. It's just strange. And Levi apparently thought this was a much better idea than sitting in a tax booth, uh, being hated and reviled by his countrymen. And so... He takes up with Jesus. He leaves everything immediately. He follows Jesus right then and there. He leaves all of his wealth, and he leaves his job, and he leaves his privileged position behind, and he follows Jesus. But then he does this amazing thing, this thing that I think is really, really telling about the type of person that Levi was. He's so compelled by who Jesus is that he wants all of his friends to meet this man too. And so he gathers them all together, 
And because he's a tax collector, all of his friends happen to be tax collectors and sinners. And he throws a party. He throws a party. He wants all his friends to meet Jesus too. And Jesus is down with this, apparently. He really is. In fact, we discover through the Gospels that eating with tax collectors and sinners was a regular practice for Jesus. This wasn't the only time he did it. There's a a story of Jesus' interaction with another tax collector. His name is Zacchaeus. And when Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus, he tells Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house. Call your friends. Let's have a party, (laughs) which is interesting. Basically, and, and Zacchaeus goes, okay. Then he throws a party for Jesus. Uh, Jesus was regularly in the habit of being at these types of parties, rubbing shoulders with these types of people. And inevitably, this draws the attention of the religious leaders of his day. It draws the attention of the Pharisees. Now, something I'm sure if you've been in church for a while you know, but is important for this morning, the Pharisees uh, were the people who saw it as their mission to draw kind of very firm boundaries about who was sinful and who was righteous. They saw this as their job. Or who was holy and who was defiled or impure is another way of talking about it. And the tax collectors and sinners were in the sinful and defiled camp for the Pharisees, right? Pretty clearly. And so they go up to Jesus' disciples and they challenge what Jesus is doing in this passage. And Jesus hears what they're saying to his disciples. And he asks a question to them that almost sounds like a riddle to us beginning in verse 12. Here's what he says. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the part of Jesus' response that I really want to drill down on this morning is in verse 13. But, but go and learn what this means. I desire mer- mercy, not Murray. I want a guy named Murray. Uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Because the reason I want to drill down on this this morning is because it's really easy to miss what Jesus is doing. It seems kind of plain on the surface. We seem to think we know exactly what Jesus is saying here and we can move past it. But it's actually, uh, he's doing something here that's, uh, that's incredibly radical. It's more radical than we even think of when we read it. Uh, at first glance. He's, what Jesus is doing here, and this is fascinating, is he is redefining what it means to be holy in the eyes of God by quoting the prophet Hosea. He, this, this last section, verse 13, is a quotation of Hosea uh, found in chapter 6, verse 6, and this is what the Hosea passage says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, like I said, it can be really easy to skip past what is happening here uh, because we are unfamiliar with the time that Jesus was living in. And particularly, we are unfamiliar with the idea of purity codes or laws of purity that were common at this time. In the religious culture of Jesus' day, it was possible to become unclean or impure religiously or ritualistically by being too close or touching anything that was deemed to be impure or unclean. Does this make sense? If you, were, if you got in close proximity to, or you touched something that was unclean, you, by virtue of your proximity to that, were made unclean, or what they would call ritualistically impure, which means you couldn't participate, 
uh, in the religious practices of Israel, you were kind of cast out for a period of time. This could happen a myriad of different ways, but it was a very common thing in their world. It's something that we, on the surface, don't feel like we're familiar with, because in our culture we don't talk like this, but, uh, but, it, but it was a big deal in Jesus' day. And what the, re- the purpose of religion then, in many people's minds, was to draw lines or to create barriers or fences so that people would not become defiled or unclean. This was partially the purpose of religion. Basically, uh, in, a, in the Jewish purity codes, uncleanness or impurity was regarded as infectious, like it, you could catch it. Does this make sense? Is everybody tracking? You, you could catch this impurity, and it was something through proximity or touching. But what we see Jesus doing in the, in the Gospels is fascinating when placed within the context of Jewish purity codes, because Jesus is challenging these purity codes and regulations all over the place, specifically in the Gospel of Matthew, in the few chapters on either side of chapter 9 that we're looking at today. Earlier in chapter 8, Jesus heals a man with leprosy by touching him, which was considered something that would make you impure, right? Because this guy has leprosy. You can't touch him. Now, they weren't thinking in medical terms. It's important for you to realize this this morning. They weren't thinking like, you touch a person with leprosy, you get leprosy. They were thinking about this in religious terms. You touch a person with leprosy, you become religiously impure in some sense. Now, they might have had some sense of the fact that proximity to a sick person would actually make you sick, but this wasn't the way that they were thinking about it. They were thinking about it in religious terms. And so Jesus touches the man with leprosy, and Jesus is supposed to be defiled by this touching of the man with leprosy. But what happens? The man, not Jesus, is healed. Jesus is not defiled by his touching of the man. Rather, the man is healed. In Matthew chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood touches Jesus without Jesus' knowledge even, and he is not defiled by that touching. She is healed. Fascinating, right? And later in Matthew 5, in that same chapter, Jesus touches a dead girl's hand, which was the worst and most defiling thing you could possibly do in the kind of religious imagination of this time. And yet, this girl is resurrected by Jesus' touch. He is not defiled. All this touching and proximity and impurity was some really serious stuff in Jesus' day. It was not anything that a religious person joked around about. It was considered part of what it meant to worship God rightly. It was highly taboo and inappropriate for a holy person, let alone a rabbi, to go around touching all of these impure things, being in such close proximity to these impure people. It was not appropriate, and the Pharisees wanted to let everybody know Because in that day, the thought was that the holy needed to maintain its distance from the impure so that the holy would not be made impure or unclean through its proximity. It was about protecting holiness. Does this make sense? About protecting holiness, about protecting purity, about erecting barriers to make sure that the holy was protected. Because impurity in this context was contagious. Does that make sense? Now, it would be easy for me to stop right here with that explanation, uh, but I really want you to understand what I'm talking about this morning, because I think what is happening in this passage is deeper than we even realize. I thought I did a great job of explaining it there, FYI, but I think, but I think it's even deeper than we realize uh, that it actually has a kind of emotional component to it. What these people were experiencing when they were living in a world of clean and unclean, defiled 
and pure, holy and unholy. There, there was an emotional component to it. There was, uh, there was a kind of revulsion, revulsion that the Pharisees feel in their hearts, in their brains, when Jesus is doing this. And there was an emotional component to what, uh, what was happening there. It's actually tied, in a sense, to our psychology, to our psychology. Now, this is not an idea that's original to me, just in case you thought I was really smart and have a degree in psychology. There's a Christian psychologist and theologian, a guy named Rick, Richard Beck, who introduced me to this idea in a book that he wrote called Unclean, which is really good. But he says uh, that what is actually happening here is called boundary psychology. Can you say boundary psychology? I don't know why I made you do that. Um, but this boundary psychology this, this need to create boundaries, to create walls that we can't traverse in order to keep ourselves safe or pure is driven, Beck says, by a fundamental human emotion and that we all experience this very same emotion. And it causes us, just like the Pharisees, to create boundaries, to create walls, to create space between us and other people or other things so that we don't get sick. So Beck has a little experiment that I actually want to do with you this morning, a little psychological experiment that I think is a great way of showing and actually making us all feel the feeling that I think is, uh, that is occurring, that is motivating this kind of religious separation that we're, that we're reading about in the text this morning. So I need a volunteer. Can I have a volunteer? Joss, no, you're up on stage already. Anybody? No, no. There we go. I don't trust you, Carol. <laughs> All right. Come on up, man. Come on up. Give me five. There you go. Stand right over here. Stand right over here. I'm going to move the, I'm gonna move the passage. The, yeah, perfect. So right here, what we have is a water filter, a clean, clear pitcher of water, and a glass from my house. This is clean water. I filtered it right before we came in. Would you take a drink of that? Oh, pounded it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. But now, I want to introduce into this whole thing a contaminant. A contaminant. Something that would contaminate the water. And so, I have a fly. I know, it's gross. There were way grosser versions of this experiment, so I'm sparing you those. Yeah. So, where's the fly? Come on, buddy. He's at the bottom. There he is. He's in the water. All right. Uh, he's in the water. Do you want to take a drink of that now? Less now. Yeah, less now. <laughs> here, but he, so it makes sense, right? There's a fly in my water. I'm not going to drink that water. But here's where the thing gets. The, the, here's where the experiment gets interesting. I am filtering this fly. This is a uh, carbon filter, right? It's filtering that water with the fly through, right? So this water that's in here has touched a dead fly, but it is now clean, right? It's clean water, right? <laughs> Logically, it's clean, right? There, there is a leg in there, but it's not a big deal. Uh, <laughs> Imagine with me that it's logically clean. Now, here's the thing. Do you, 
do you want to drink that? Even if it were clean, would you want to drink it? No, that's right. You can go sit down. You don't, right? Yeah, thanks. The feeling that you're feeling there is disgust, right? You're feeling disgust. You see, even though we know that the water, theoretically, is clean, that it's filtered, in our minds, it's still contaminated, isn't it? Because psychologists, psychologists call this the emotion of disgust. It's the feeling that causes us to separate from things that we view unclean. It, it, it's the emotion that drives the separation. Disgust is the emotion that causes us to mark some things out as pure and let them in, and then mark other things out as impure and keep them out. Does this make sense? When you are feeling disgust and it's associated with things like food, it, is, it can be helpful, right? It can keep you healthy. It can keep you from getting sick. But when that feeling of disgust is associated with people, it causes us to build fences and separate ourselves for fear that we could be contaminated by them, right? And I want to submit to you this morning that this is what's happening in this passage. The Pharisees are motivated by a sense of disgust, a need to totally separate from something that they believe will contaminate them if they get too close to it. And they don't understand what Jesus is doing and why he would allow himself to be defiled like this, to be made impure. But Jesus wants to rearrange our paradigms a little bit. He wants to rearrange the paradigms of holiness and purity entirely. When Jesus quotes Hosea and says that what God really wants is mercy rather than sacrifice, he is fundamentally changing for his followers the way that we are called to interact with people who were considered or are considered unclean or defiled. This is what Jesus is doing. For Jesus, it was not the impure which is contagious. Impurity for Jesus was not contagious. Impurity can't contaminate the holy for Jesus. It is actually the holy which is contagious. Holiness is contagious in Jesus' worldview. When Jesus' holiness comes into contact with that which in, his, which in his words is sick, he does not get sick. The sick get well. The impure don't infect Jesus with their impurity. It is Jesus' holiness that makes them clean. And Jesus asserts this reality other places as well. If once you see this, once you see this teaching through this lens, it makes sense. In Matthew 15, Jesus is asked why his disciples are not following the religious rituals around hand washing when they, before they eat. Now, again, this is not about hygiene. It was about a religious activity. And this is what Jesus says. Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them right? This is Jesus re reorienting this paradigm again. By eating with tax collectors and sinners, healing lepers, raising little dead girls by the hand to life, Jesus is saying the people that you think are defiled and can make you impure are actually the ones that God wants to be closest to. This is what he's saying. Because, because it is not the healthy who need a physician, it is the sick. And if we are not careful, 
we can draw religious lines like the Pharisees as well. We draw lines believing that if we get too close to a certain type of person, we will be contaminated or defiled by their sin, right? But Jesus teaches us that in the kingdom of God, it is not impurity which is contagious. It is holiness. And in the Gospels, Jesus has the most contagious kind of holiness. His holiness is making all kinds of people clean all over the place. His holiness is rubbing off on all kinds of people. And do you know what? Jesus instructs his followers in the Gospels to have this same approach, to, ha- to carry with themselves uh, the same type of contagious holiness that gets close to people who many were considered defiled, impure, or broken. In Matthew 5, uh, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says these famous lines, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. Who knows what a bushel is? But on a candlestick, and it is given light unto all those who are, that are in the house. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It sounds a lot like contagious holiness, doesn't it? Jesus is commanding his followers to go into a dark world and be light, expelling darkness, transforming the world. He doesn't tell his followers to go into all the world and draw boundaries, to carve up humanity and say, these people are clean and these people are unclean and these are the people we need to stay away from and these are the people we can hang out with, right? He says, go into all the world. Be light in places that are dark. Expel darkness. And so this morning, what I think this means for us is really two things. I really think there's probably two things here. The first thing being that for followers of Jesus, contagious holiness often looks like radical hospitality. Contagious holiness often looks like radical hospitality. Have you ever noticed that the people who wanted, this is common, have you ever noticed that the people who wanted to be closest to Jesus were the outcasts, the sinners, the irreligious, right? You've heard this said before. This is why. (laughs) This is why. It is because of his kind of radical hospitality that he showed them. He was not reviled by these people. He was not disgusted by them. Rather, out of a sense of loving mercy, he moved towards them with compassion. He pursued them. And Jesus' church, his followers, are called to live life in this very same way. So loving, so compassionate, so full of mercy that people want to be around us too. And if we are motivated by a sense of disgust to separate or distance ourselves from any type of person or any group of people, it is a good, it is a good sign that we have believed a lie. We have believed the lie that their sin or their dysfunction can contaminate us, when in the paradigm of Jesus, it cannot. It cannot. Now, a quick point here. What I'm not advocating for is a lack of wisdom, right? I'm not advocating for a lack of wisdom. 
If you're in this place and you're struggling with some type of controlling sin, I'm not telling you to, like, go do it, right? If you do lines of cocaine, I'm not telling you to, like, go find the cocaine hub and, like, live there, right? (laughs) I was going to use alcohol, but cocaine sounded like a far more extreme version of that, right? Don't go to Miami, right? Whatever, I don't know. If you're an alcoholic, don't hang out in bars, right? But if you're an alcoholic, that doesn't mean don't hang out with other alcoholics. This is the whole premise of AA, right? We should uh, have healthy boundaries for ourselves, especially if we have controlling sins in our lives. But we should never create boundaries in our lives that keep us away from people, especially sick people, especially people who are in need of a physician. The truth of the matter is, is that there is a religious impulse in all of our hearts. It's motivated by this feeling of disgust. We see a sin, we see an activity, and we are disgusted by it. And our first um, natural impulse is to be disgusted by that thing and then to draw boundaries. But I want to submit to you today that, that when we feel that feeling of disgust, especially as it's associated with an individual person, that's probably a sign that God wants you to move towards that person in love. Towards that person in love and in mercy. Because who needs the love and mercy of Jesus? Right? Right. And so very often this looks like radical hospitality. And so if Jesus was throwing parties for people who people didn't want, uh, didn't, people didn't want him throwing parties for, um, at least have somebody over to your house that people think might be a little questionable. <laughs> right? At least have them in the safety of your own home. I don't know. At least, at least go out for coffee with somebody who, uh, who people might go, oh, man, why is he hanging out with him? I don't know what that's about. It's, a, it's not a bad thing to do for a follower of Jesus because for the follower of Jesus, we are empowered by the Spirit of God. We are empowered by the Spirit of Jesus to be contagiously holy in this world. And if you don't see yourself as being capable of a kind of contagious holiness, chances are we need to get a little bit closer to Jesus. Because anyone who gets close to the kind, to the contagious holiness of Jesus will carry that same holiness out into their world in a way that is both countercultural and highly effective, and highly effective. So that's the first thing. We should be people who uh, model radical hospitality. And the second thing for us this morning is, I think, uh, that Jesus wants to give you his holiness, to purify you through the washing of his blood, to cleanse you and make you whiter than snow. And he can do this. He wants to do this. On the cross, Jesus fully and completely provided for the cleansing of our sins so that we don't have to carry them any longer. So that we, so that we don't, so that we don't have to stand under the burden of our sinfulness, so that we no longer have to be defiled. And in a room this size, I am sure there are people who feel defiled and need to feel the cleansing love of Jesus this morning. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've never followed Jesus. And today, for the first time, you want to turn to Jesus and allow him to cleanse your sins. That's a really good thing to do. 
The truth of the matter is, no matter where you are, Jesus does not look at you with disgust, even if you look at yourself that way. Jesus is not repulsed by you. He looks at you with mercy and with eyes of love. He wants to be close to you. He wants you to be free. And this morning, in this morning, freedom is available for all of us. And so I want to pray a prayer as we close this morning. I want to pray a prayer over us this morning, all of us, actually. So if you'd stand with me, that'd be great. And just in an attitude of prayer, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning and you feel defiled, maybe you've done something, maybe you feel uh, just a spe- uh, uh, an acute awareness of your own brokenness or your own sin this morning, Jesus wants to reaffirm to you the reality that you are forgiven, that your sins have been washed away, and in the blood of the Lamb, we are all whiter than snow. And if you are not a follower of Jesus in this place this morning, Jesus wants you to give your life over to him because he loves you. He looks at you with mercy and he wants to cleanse you. He wants to take away your guilt. He wants to take away your shame. And he wants to make you new. And so this morning, with all of us in this place, I just want to pray this prayer over you. And as I pray it, please listen to the words and pray along in your heart. And then uh, we'll close. Let's pray. God of mercy, we confess that we have sinned. We have sinned in our minds, with our words, and in our actions. We have stumbled, fallen desperately short, and we humbly repent. We ask that through Jesus you would help us to receive the mercy that you, extend to, that you readily extend to us this morning. Help us to receive the contagious holiness of Jesus that we may be healed so that we can delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And we know now that the prayer offered in faith is effective in our lives. So we say amen and amen and amen. If you've prayed that prayer, in your heart this morning for the first time, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you are forgiven and that you are invited into God's family. If you did pray that prayer this morning for the first time, I would love for you to come talk to me because that would be a great way to start that, your journey as, a part of, as being a part of God's family. And if you're in this place this morning and you, and you, are, and you prayed that prayer because you feel burdened by some type of guilt or shame, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go today in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.